0: We turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Today, we are starting a new series on eschatology. And we're going to be preaching through the book of Revelation. But before we get to the book of Revelation, we need to really understand what the rest of the Bible teaches about this topic, not just about the end times, but also about the practical application of these things to our lives. And so we're going to preach this in two parts. Uh, The first part, between now and through December, or through November, uh, part one we're going to call Kingdom Come, and we're going to deal with the Olivet Discourse, in the Gospel of Matthew, some key texts in the Old Testament, like Daniel, uh, and some of the epistles that lay a foundation for this very weighty topic, and then part two, we're going to jump into the very deep end of the pool in the book of Revelation in January, so that gives me a lot of time to really get my mind around that book. Today, we're dealing with the topic of what is eschatology? What is eschatology? If you found your place, Ephesians chapter 1, of course, we have it on the screen as well. Here our God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give. Thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we would be remiss if we didn't also reflect upon this day, September the 11th, in 2001, when airplanes were flown into the World Trade Centers, killing thousands of people. Lord, we thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you, Lord, for bringing our nation through that difficult time. We pray for those families that continue to grieve for their lost loved ones. We pray for our political leaders, that you would continue to give them wisdom. We pray that such a thing would never happen again. And Father, as we approach your word, we see, we contemplate these different things that happen in the world. We know that none of them escape your sovereign hand. We know that you are in control in a way that we can't fully understand. And that comes into view as we contemplate this weighty topic of eschatology. So, Lord, I confess my weakness and my inability to, to do this in my own power so I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would give us all understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Eschatology. Eschatol- <laughs> Eschatology. Eschatology is a word and a doctrine that many Christians may not be familiar with. Other Christians avoid altogether, and yet... This word and this doctrine lay at the very heart of Christianity. I think it's safe to say that every doctrine of Scripture is in some way touched by eschatology. I would go so far as to say that eschatology is the fountain out of which all other doctrines flow. That's how central this doctrine is in Scripture. And so, that raises the question, what is eschatology? Well, it comes from a Greek word, eschatos, which means last or end. And so the common way that we've defined this in theological textbooks is merely as a study of end times. That is, of the return of Christ in glory and the eternal state, what some call the eschaton. That is, the age to come. But what we need to understand, what I hope to demonstrate to you, is that eschatology is about far more than just those things, as glorious as they are. It also has in its purview the eternal purpose and goal of God in all of his his history. And how believers in this age, that is before Christ's return, actually experience the spiritual blessings that will mark the age to come, eternal life, glorified existence, we actually experience those spiritual blessings in this age. Not in their fullness, but we still experience them nevertheless. And how it is that, the, as one commentator says, the future relates to the present. One commentator puts it well. The resurrected Christ... As we're trying to get our minds around eschatology, the resurrected Christ introduces within the lives of his followers the first fruits of the eternal state. We talk about the already and the not yet. We already in Christ experience the blessings of Christ and his kingdom and of the age to come, but we haven't experienced those things in their fullness. And in our passage today, the book of Ephesians, like no other book in the Bible, gives expression to the fullness of what eschatology is and its application to us in our everyday lives of the glories of this salvation in Christ and the abundant life that we have in Christ in the Spirit now and the certain hope that we have of the future because the future is in His hands and because we know that one day He will return to consummate His kingdom and usher us into the eternal state without fail. And today and next week we're going to look briefly at chapter 1 as it lays out the stunning glory of eternal redemption, this eternal redemptive plan of the triune God and the blessings that are ours in Christ both in this age and in the age to come, and helps us, I believe, to understand the full scope of what eschatology is. So the main idea we're going to look at, and it's a mouthful. Eschatology has in view God's eternal purpose, that all of his people will enjoy every spiritual blessing in Christ in this age, and fully in the age to come at Christ's return to the praise of his glory alone. Two points we're going to look at this morning. First of all, we see the eternal purpose of God to give his people every spiritual blessing. Now the question arises here, and I'll ask the question here to you all, maybe see what, what you might think about this. Where in the Bible is the first expression of eschatology? It is study of the quote-unquote last things. Where in the Bible is the first expression of that, of that do you suppose? Anyone? Bueller? Who? What? Genesis 3.16. I would say close. <laughs> right, church? Wrong pew. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the right church, and I would argue it's Genesis chapter 1, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And chapter 1 goes on to describe how God created the universe out of nothing as He merely spoke. And the precise things that he called into existence came into existence exactly as he said they were and would. He created the earth and the stars and the galaxies and the suns and the moons and all the plant life and all the insect life and all the animal life on earth. If I can just digress for a moment, if God can do all of that, he can handle all of our problems. And then on the sixth day, we see the crowning jewel of God's creation. He fashions man from the dust of the earth in his image. He makes them male and female in his image, unique from all the other creatures to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as our catechism says. And then God went on to make a covenant of works with Adam our representative in the garden. Adam and Eve, they were tasked to to spread God's kingdom over the face of the earth, and he enters into a covenant of works. Blessings if you obey, this is the substance of it, blessings if you obey, but curse if you disobey. Perfect obedience was required by Adam, and Adam was our representative in the garden, and when Adam fell, we all fell in Adam. And now, Death has entered into the world, physical death, spiritual death. And so the Bible teaches now that we are born in sin and conceived in sin. We're guilty in Adam, but we're also guilty because of our own transgressions. And so the fall happened. Man stood rightfully condemned before a holy God with absolutely no hope in himself. The story could have ended there. But God. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, God was going to send a Savior to save his people from their sin so that they could partake of the glorified existence that was held out to Adam. And this Savior would succeed where Adam failed. That raises a question for us, though, as we think about that. There's a lot more to say about all that. But the question here is this: why? Why did God create the universe? Was God bored? Was he lonely? Gee, I, I just need somebody to talk to. I'm gonna create man because I want to hang out with people, I want to have fellowship with man. Was that the reason? And we know, no, that's not why. And we know that because of other ways we know that is because God is triune. The one God who truly exists is one in essence and three in person. We talk about the Trinity. One God in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who had perfect fellowship from all eternity. Not in need of anything or anyone. We don't give any fulfillment to God. We don't, God doesn't need us to give him glory. He has it all within himself. God was in need of none of his creatures for anything. So he created for no other reason that it pleased him to do so for his glory. But then that raises the question, well, what was his plan? Because all of us, you know, when you build something, you have plans. I'm going I'm to create this thing, and I've got to know what the final goal is going to be, and I've got to have the plans in place so that, that what I'm going to build actually can get built the way it's supposed to be built. Well, if we can do that, Surely God, the holy God of heaven and earth, the all-wise creator of heaven and earth, had a plan. He didn't just create and go off and read the newspaper somewhere or surf the internet somewhere. What what was the plan? And that takes us to our passage today. When we read, in the beginning, God, we understand God that he had an eternal purpose, an eternal plan before time even began. Hence, eschatology, last things, begins at the beginning. And in fact, before the beginning. That's what our passage alludes to. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, we see here, Paul, he gives one long sentence, verses 3 through 14, one long sentence in the Greek, that outlines the glories of the triune God's eternal plan for the ages. By telling us, he begins by telling us that every spiritual blessing is ours in the heavenlies. Then he goes on to unpack what those blessings are. And at the heart of those blessings is union with the person of Christ. And so we see the past blessings. He chose us in Christ, verses 3 through 6. The Father chose us in Christ when? before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever created. This raises or brings up the topic of election. Election is not based on anything good in us or foreseen in us. Because, first of all, we were chosen, the text says, to be holy and blameless and for adoption as sons. If we're chosen unto those things, that means that God contemplated us as not being those things, which is why we had to be chosen unto those things. So God didn't look down a quarter of time and say, oh, I see John's gonna be smart enough, or wise enough, or holy enough, and on that basis, I'm gonna choose John. No, John. God chose me in Christ so that I might be holy and blameless and, and be adopted as a son, because in my state as a sinner, the scriptures teach I was at enmity with God. And God says, I'm going to choose a vast multitude of hell deserving sinners, rebels, enemies, my enemies. I'm going to choose them in Christ so that they might be my children, my children, my sons and my daughters. And verse five, it's according to the purpose His purpose, the kind intention of His will, not my will, to the praise of His glorious grace, not to the praise of my wisdom, not to the praise of my smarts, not to the praise of my free will. In other words, it's 100% according to His goodness and grace that is His undeserved favor alone. And then Paul moves on from before eternity. He moves now into time. Chosen unto salvation, but we weren't born saved. Paul makes that clear in chapter 2 when he says, You were dead in your trespasses of sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So how is it that these ones who were chosen in Christ and are born in that condition, how could they ever be saved? Verse 7, we needed a Redeemer. In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And so what we see here is that the eternal Son, who dwelled with the Father and Spirit from, from all eternity, one in nature with the Father and the Spirit, the eternal Son became fully human yet without sin to come and pay the price for our sins on the cross. And on the cross, he bore the judgment, the curse, the outer darkness that will befall unbelievers at the end of time. In other words the final judgment at the end of time that's going to happen with absolute certainty, every single person in this room and every single person on the face of the planet will have to stand before God and give an account. And on judgment day, you're either going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. And then that judgment after we hear, Depart from me, I never knew you, will be cast into outer darkness. Hell. That judgment at the last day broke into time and was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. He bore that judgment for us. He bore the curse. He bore the outer darkness. When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As touching his human nature, he's saying, I am bearing the curse of God that you and I deserve. The judgment at the last day. I am enduring hell, as it were, for your sake. So that you don't have to. So that the blessings of the eschaton, the blessings of the end of the age, we break into you as you turn by God's grace to faith in Christ. And when you do, by the Holy Spirit, you're filled with the Holy Spirit now, and now you've tasted of the age to come. You are, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. He raised us up with Christ. Resurrection, spiritually, that's what we have. That's what Christ did for us. He redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin and death. Our willing slavery to sin and death. So that we could be forgiven and declared righteous in Christ's sight. That judgment at the end of time has broken in now upon believers. We've been declared forgiven And righteous in Christ. And so as a believer, what does that mean for you? It means right now today, God sees you as forgiven forever and sees you as righteous forever because Christ's righteousness has been credited to your account. And now, at the final judgment, when we stand before God, we're going to hear on that day pronounced over us what was pronounced over us when we first came to Christ. Forgiven and righteous in Christ. And then verse 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit applies that perfect redemption that Christ perfectly accomplished. The Holy Spirit applies that redemption to all those that were chosen in Christ and redeemed in Christ. And now he seals us in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now God himself is, the text says, the guarantee. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I don't know about you, but I love guarantees. (laughs) I love a sure thing. And here's the thing, you can't get any more sure than God himself when he says, guaranteed. You don't have to doubt, you don't have to worry, you don't have to ponder, you don't have to think. It's guaranteed. God himself puts his very name on the line. It says, this is yours. This inheritance is yours forever because of what Christ has done and because you're in Christ. Not because of your good works, but because of His good works and His grace and His mercy. Guaranteed the inheritance. Already not yet. We already possess the inheritance of eternal life and union with Christ and every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we will receive the fullness of those things at the end of time at Christ's return. It's guaranteed, listen, it's guaranteed not by you, not by me, not by the church or anything else, but by the decree of God and the purchase price of Christ's blood And sealing in the Holy Spirit. A young boy received an inheritance from his father who died. He received part of it when his father died, but had to wait until he was 21 years old to receive the fullness of it. That's the idea. It captures a little bit the idea of the inheritance we have. We've had a down payment. We've tasted of it. But there's much more to come in Christ. And so verses 3 through 14 is an overview of God's perfect plan of redemption in Christ. Which Paul describes as a plan for the fullness of time. An infallible plan. A perfect plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on the earth. That, dear friends, is eschatology. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, is not just the beginning of the universe, but of the outworking of God's eternal plan of redemption that was foreordained from the foundation of the world, a plan that had in view his glory in saving a multitude of lost sinners like you and like me by his grace alone and that takes us to the second point here we must take hold of every spiritual blessing in Christ our spiritual blessings in Christ we need to take hold of those things verse 15 he says for this reason what reason <laughs> everything that he said in verses 3 to 14 for this reason, because all this is true. All these, these spiritual blessings in Christ, and you're, you've been chosen in Christ, and adopted in Christ, and redeemed in Christ, and, and are being sanctified, are sanctified, and being sanctified in Christ, and are sealed in the Holy Spirit in Christ. Because all of that is true. In light of all that, for this reason, I'm going to pray that you understand these things that you take hold of them in your life. Because you know how it is. We go through our daily lives, and sometimes it's hard for us to get our minds around all that. We're just struggling to make it day to day. And something comes into our life, a bad circumstance, and it knocks us for a loop. Paul's saying, listen, this is who you are. This is what you have in Christ. Now I'm going to pray that you take hold of it and you never forget it and you never take your eyes off of it. So what does he say? Verse 17. That he might give the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he might give to you the Spirit of wisdom. Wisdom. Knowing and doing what God desires in every area of life. And how... Can we know God's desires? Well, revelation. I need to be made aware. Revelation. Not my opinion. Not what I think. Like I said last week, so many people today, we have our opinions, but they're not examined. Why do I believe what I believe? How do I know what I believe is true? Well, we're not just going off of our opinions or our or fallible impressions, or ideas that pop into our heads. But scripture alone, that's the revelation. That's the only inerrant, infallible, sufficient, God-breathed revelation that, that we need to come to grips with and submit our minds to. Point of application here. I've been in churches, and maybe you've heard this. God told me. God told me, thus saith the Lord. If, God, if what God told you contradicts what God, what God breathed through the 40 authors of his inerrant word, then God didn't tell you what you claim he told you. And you're being a false witness. You're putting words in the mouth of the holy God of heaven and earth. And by the way, those things have ceased. There is no more, thus saith the Lord, because it's all here. Amen. You want to know what God said? It's right here. This is it. He's spoken to us in these last days through his Son, his infallible word. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is directed to having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, our hearts, the inner essence, the real you, Christ rescued us from the dungeon of sin and death and brings us into the light and gives more light so that we might more fully understand who he is. Grow in the knowledge of who he is. Grow in our love for who he is and and come to a deeper understanding of all of these spiritual blessings. And he unpacks some of them here. We may come to understand what? The hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Do you have any hope today? What is hope? Hope is a certain expectation of the future. We need hope. Gotta have hope. And hope is only found in one place. And that's Christ. And so when I say, do you have hope, it's just another way of saying, really, do you have Christ? Do you have Christ? Do you have hope? Because without, without, without Christ, there is no hope. There's no hope for now. There's no hope for the future. Because the only certain expectation of the future that you have apart from Christ is eternal judgment. Cut off from God. So often... I share the gospel with people. I've shared, I remember one person in particular, I shared the gospel with him. I said how, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that now, you know, there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us can get to heaven on the basis of our good works. There's, ultimately, none of us is good in and of ourselves, good enough to get to heaven. And this person just objected. So, but I'm a good moral person. I can get that God sends Hitler to hell, but me? Apart from Christ, it's not just the worst of us, but the best of us who are condemned and are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Because in our pride, we think, I'm good enough. And I'm not really a sinner who deserves God's justice justice and judgment. It's just pride. In Christ we have hope. A certain expectation of the future, of eternal life with him forever and ever, and of the present. Because now we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We now have had the penalty of our sins taken care of by Christ. We now have been delivered from the the power of sin in our lives, and one day we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin because of what Christ has done for us through his sacrificial death and bodily resurrection from the dead. And so when our hearts are inflamed with this hope, do you know what it does or what it should do? It should fuel our faith. Keep preaching this gospel to yourself every day. The world is not our home. No matter what I go through here, as hard as it is, as crushing as it is, as heart wrenching as it is, as heartbreaking as it is, I mean, I fully understand all the things I'm going through and the tragedy that I'm going through. But one thing I know is that Christ is the victor. Christ is risen, and I have hope. And one day, there will be no more suffering and pain and tears for those who who are in Christ this hope is certain because it's grounded in Christ it's grounded in the eternal purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will my father's wife loves to knit quilts she's great at knitting quilts and you know, she as she's putting knitting the quilt together, she has a picture, an idea of, of what she wants to make. It's in her mind. She knows exactly what she's and each thread she makes is is with that goal in mind. And as we see it, what she's doing here, it's like, how in the world is anything good gonna come out of that? But then the quilt's completed. And it's like, wow, what a masterpiece. Dear friends, that kind of captures what God does for us. He's the great weaver, the great quilt maker weaving all the things, all the circumstances together. And at the end, it's going to be this glorious work of art. We can't understand how it all looks now, but God is at work to bring about his masterpiece. And then we see the riches of his glorious inheritance. Glorious points to something eternal, something that can't perish The glorious transformation of our being and ultimately beholding God in all of his glory and living and reigning with him forever as he consummates his kingdom. Glorious inheritance. The greatest good thing on earth, dear friends, is utterly worthless compared to the inheritance that we have in Christ. The Apostle Paul, the former Saul of Tarsus, who was going around killing Christians before God woke him up, And saved him. That one said it. All the stuff he had before Christ was rubbish. Yet that's what we invest our lives in apart from Christ. All the rubbish of this world. All the things, all the material possessions, all those things that you can't take with you anyway. We live, we invest our whole lives in those things, forgetting that our lives are but a vapor that we're going to die one day, maybe at a time we don't expect, and have to give an account. And then verses 19, the greatest, the greatness of his power toward us who believe this is the resurrection power of the Lord. You know, every Easter we celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Of course, every worship service, that's exactly what we're doing as well. But I've noticed That after Easter, we don't think much about the implications of the resurrection in our lives. The resurrection isn't just an event that happened 2,000 years ago that proves that Christianity is true. It does do that. It also is about the continuous life-transforming effects in the lives of God's people in every age as he's at work in us to empower us to bring the gospel to the lost, So that verses 20 through 23, the exalted King Jesus would extend his kingdom through the earth as he raises spiritually dead sinners to spiritual life. Just a couple of applications here. First of all, how do we take hold of these things? First of all, it's not a 12-step program. It's not the seven principles on how to live your best life now. Rather, it's the simple means of grace. What does Paul do? He prays. Why do we need to pray? Because we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need the Lord. So we need to pray. And in prayer, we're saying, I'm weak, you're strong. Lord, I need you. Lord, work in me to willing to do your good pleasure. And then we see his word. We need his word because his word now is at work in us. His word tells us who he is and the glories of this salvation that we have. And he's at work in his word to transform our minds to renew our minds by his spirit and then of course verse 23 christ is the head of the church we can't understand these blessings until we're a part of a local body of believers walking and living and growing together with brothers and sisters in christ sharing the good news and ministering christ's love to one another as we wait for the return of our savior as we participate together In the glorious spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. As I bring this to a close, these glorious spiritual blessings in Christ, have you received them? If you never have, I want to encourage you to do that this day. Turn to the one who bore all of your sins on the cross and rose bodily from the graves that you could have eternal life. And if you have, let us remember that eschatology isn't just about end times, but all time. It's not about what will happen in a distant future, but what has been decreed in eternity past, what has been and is being worked out and accomplished by God in and through the person of Christ and the work of his Holy Spirit and how we're supposed to live each day in and through and by the power of the Holy Spirit as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, Christ our King, Will return one day to consummate his kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We give you praise, O oh God, for who you are and all of your glory. O oh Lord, be with us now. We ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen.